What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor Aguirre. Will, bad, bad weekend to be an all-time great hoops coach. Down goes K, down goes Gino. Duke UNC was incredible. Like, instant classic. Hating Duke is so fun. And I, I say that as... I'm not even the biggest Duke hater in the world. I actually, I used to root for Duke in the 2000s. I don't think I've ever said that, but I don't know. This is a confessional here. We're just, all the the bad teams are good. We've talked about this before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like all the teams that you root for as a kid that you look back on, you're like, wait, what was I doing there? Like rooting for the Packers for a brief period of time in my life when I liked Brett Favre. And, and, uh, you know, some teams just take longer to to kind of figure out the error of their ways than others. And I mean, when K, K has been unbearable for like the last decade or so, and th- that's what really kind of pushed me in the opposite direction. I actually would not mind seeing Duke win with John Shire, who to this day is like the best pre-college basketball player I have ever seen in person. Yep. And I say that when he was in eighth grade. Like he was, <laughs> I, dro- I saw him drop like 31 points in an eighth grade feeder basketball game. And like the first half, just casually doing that. It was unbelievable. Was John that Jackson. one of those like these are different humans type of thing where it's like, yeah, this guy might be going to Duke and I might not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like he, he was two years older than me. So mm-hmm. um, he was, I was, I was like on sixth grade and watching, I think I was there for like one of my brother's games. And, and it was a sight to see. This, this gym I remember was so packed to see John Shire play basketball. It was unbelievable. It's very weird to think that he is now the Duke head coach. Uh, but he was he was unbelievable. My brother actually guarded him in college, in or not in college, in high school, in the playoffs when he was my brother was a sophomore. Yeah, I think sophomore or junior, one of those two. But Glenbrook North, shout out. Anyway, okay. Um, best viral clip though of of the weekend, great weekend of basketball was the uh, Aaliyah Boston with uh, with Holly Rowe after South Carolina won the, won the women's title. Mm-hmm. Um, where She was talking about crying after last year's Final Four and how much that hurt, only to then be like, we just won a national championship and I'm in tears. But if you need one of me smiling, here it is. <laughs> Unbelievable, awesome, genuine moment. Love that. Love watching our good friend Alyssa Lang getting to kind of soak in that entire experience covering the national championship where her alma mater you know, is able to win it all. It was, it was just kind of cool to see the scene and Don Staley celebrating that like that. It was a very fun weekend in basketball. It was fun week of sports are ahead. I don't really do the Peter Burns thing where I say it's the best week of sports of the year um, just because the best week of sports should have football in it, mm-hmm. right? Like, and not no offense to spring games, but yeah, you know what? Offense to spring games, not just spring football. Okay, I I get it. Everybody's excited about this week, but best weekend, the best week of sports should have college football. So just a a thought, wanted that that to be known. Plan today, we have Aaron Murray coming on in a bit. He's going to talk about Georgia and this attempt to repeat. He's going to talk about the quarterback situation, recruiting stories, a whole lot more. We are going to also do an SEC running back edition of Bold and Brash as well. I thought that went over really well doing the early quarterback edition of that. So uh, we will probably dig into a lot of other position groups as well earlier in the year with predictions and whatnot. But before we do that, can I confess something else? I already confessed that I was like a Duke fan in the 2000s, kind of like a, you know, they're they're my national team, so to speak, or whatever. Mm -hmm. I already sort of regret 
putting Clemson at number four in my way too early top 25 that we did right <laughs> I saw this doc and I saw the Dabo slander just coming down. That's why I was pretty much silent because I was just ready for the Dabo slander. <laughs> it's here. It's coming right now. Um, look, I, I say that as someone who laid out exactly why that number four spot was all over the place, why you were seeing teams like Texas A&M and Oklahoma in there with having all of these questions about both of their programs and you can kind of see them all over the place in these ways too early rankings but i'd like to retroactively give that number four spot to baylor and take it away from clemson if i could more importantly though i would like to move off that initial take that clemson will bounce back and return to potentially playing in a national championship i'm not saying it's impossible but i don't want to be the person banging the drum saying that it'll happen why why and where, where is this Dabo slander coming from? Did I just wake up on a Monday morning and decide to trash the Clemson coach? As many people in this business have done because Dabo has become a punching bag. And certainly guys Poor little like Dabo. Him, Don't beat up on poor little Dabo, all right? We would never. We would never. I promise you there is a purpose. Will, I asked you this question the other day after, um, after we, we stopped recording. And I, I want to see if you can remember the answer. Since the transfer portal became a thing in 2018, how many players has Dabo signed from the portal? Just one, right? Just one. And technically exactly right. it's like not even really one because didn't the dude start off at Clemson? I'm glad you said that because Hunter Johnson, if you forgot who he was or you remember that name, you're like, ah, who was that? He was the five-star quarterback who started his career at Clemson, was in the 2017 class, which was the class before Trevor Lawrence, but he left for Northwestern after Trevor Lawrence became the man and was a starter as a true freshman. Johnson was, uh, let's, let's say, just not good at Northwestern. Um, so he called up Dabo and said, hey, do you have any uh, GA spots available on your staff trying to start my coaching career? And Dabo tells him, well, if you want to use that six year of eligibility that everybody gets because 2020 didn't count against anyone, you can, if you want, throw on a uniform for one more year. And he's like, all right, sure, sign me up. So he does that. To recap, the only player Dabo has ever signed from the portal was a guy who started his career at Clemson and was ready to become a coach. Dabo, does not like the portal. He Wait, hold on. Can you just imagine that conversation he had with his like girlfriend, family, significant other, where it's like, hey, yeah, I called up Davo, tried to get hired, da da da. Looks like I played football for years. <laughs> what? How do, how do we get, I didn't even know if you had eligibility left. No, 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 he checked it out. I got, I got eligibility, I'm joining the team, friends. Hunter Johnson, if you're looking for a way to approach this situation, to talk about it with people in your life, um, we can hook you up with the phone number for Zabuya Noland, who's <laughs> no stranger to that very principle. But yeah, that's that's not a that's not exactly the typical path that you would see in the transfer portal at all. Usually, if there's something like that that happens, that doesn't see the light of day. But it's still just one player that Dabo has signed from the portal. Dabo thinks that it's sending the wrong message to kids to have the portal in its current state, especially with these new rules, wherein undergrads do not have to sit out a year of their athletic prime the way that they used to, they get that one-time exemption. If Dabo had it his way, the national letter of intent would be signed in blood, kids would spend <laughs> four to five years at their school, they would never go to the NFL, they would marry their college sweetheart, they would buy a house in the town that they went to college in, and they would live a beautiful life working in insurance as a season ticket holder to their alma maters. He actually lives in a Dr. Pepper commercial. <laughs> he does. Yeah, that, that, that's him. That, that's who the entire character is based on. 
Those are my words, not Davos. Here are Davos' words after he beat South Carolina to close the regular season. This via The Athletic. As I've said many times, we'll use the portal if it's something we have to. It's not been a need for us at this point. We're always going to be a developmental program. And if we can't address a need through high school kids and there's a gap somewhere, we'll always look at that as an option, but only if it's something that we need. Okay. Um, Dabo said all of those things about um, it's not been a need at this point for us to use the transfer portal. He said that as his team was getting ready to accept the bid to play in the Cheez-It Bowl. I don't want to hear it's not been a need for us at this point. You had your worst season in seven years. You watched your offensive line struggle again. You desperately could have used a veteran backup quarterback after it was clear that DJ Uyunglele was not going to figure things out. Don't tell me it's not been a need for us at this point, or at the very least, if you tell me that, go out and say afterwards, say, but after seeing the way that this year played out with <laughs> us not addressing some obvious areas of need, I'm going to start recruiting the transfer portal. It's but almost Dabo, like it's hard to find a team with a more glaring need than what Clemson had because their defense was so good. <laughs> like they so literally good. just needed a couple of guys and they would have been right back there. It's like, anyway, we're, we're cheese it King appreciators here for sure, but that team ceiling should not be the cheese it bowl. Yes, very, very true. Um, it, it should not be, and we have seen from 2015 to 2020 that that was not Clemson ceiling by any stretch of the imagination. Dabo did not do what I basically laid out for him, that quote that he could have just taken. He didn't even have to credit me. He could have just used it. Instead, he got a quarterback who was ready to start his coaching career, and you're crazy if you don't think that Hunter Johnson starting his career at Clemson had something to do with Dabo's with Dabo even being willing to talk to him about coming back to Clemson. It's funny because even if Dabo had, let's say, reached the college football playoff this past season and lost in a semifinal game, the words, it's not been a need for us at this point, should have fallen on deaf ears. If I recall, it was a transfer portal quarterback, Joe Burrow, who took Clemson to the woodshed in the national championship at the end of the 2019 season. If I recall, it was a transfer portal quarterback, Justin Fields, who lit up Clemson like a Christmas tree in the semifinal at the end of the 2020 season. In the title game this past year, we watched Jamison Williams and former Clemson corner Darian Kendrick play pivotal roles in the outcome of that game. Or if Dabo wasn't watching the title game because he was too busy recruiting high school talent and telling them about how special of a place Clemson is, maybe Maybe he saw when Jermaine Johnson, a transfer from Georgia, earned ACC Defensive Player of the Year honors at Florida State. But again, I don't want to put words into Dabo's mouth. Here are Dabo's words once again via The Athletic. There's not a school in the country that's, go that's not going to have to recruit the portal. That's what's been created. I don't like it, but that's the way the world is. You deal with it. Close quote. To this point, Dabo's way of dealing with the system that now allows kids to leave for another school, just like coaches like him who are on $90 million contracts, is simply complaining about it. Meanwhile, Clemson just had 11 players enter the portal since the start of the 2021 season. Some were probably more justified than others. Some might have been a problem and a reason why this system has too few of guidelines and kids are making mistakes in kids these days, as Dabo would like to say. Hmm. Dabo's not adapting. We talk about adapt or die, right? It's a mantra. Okay. It's in the Saturday Down South podcast constitution, all right? It's in there. 
Dabo is not adapting. He's telling everyone, do you remember that six-year stretch when I won two titles and I took Clemson to four title games? I'm going to stick with what worked and not give in to this free agency business of the transfer portal. Dabo acts like the transfer portal is this ultimate sin and those who participate are giving in to temptation. The transfer portal is by no means perfect. It has flaws. But instead of adapting, Dabo is dying on that hill while Saban, Kirby, Ryan Day, Brian Kelly, Lane Kiffin, Lincoln Riley, everyone, they are using that system to their advantage to address roster needs. We saw what Alabama looked like when Jameson Williams went away, right? And how much that kind of changed their offense. If you want to point to the second half against Georgia, or if you want to point to the second half against Auburn, Jameson Williams is a very valuable piece of that team. Picture taking Joe Burrow away from 2019 LSU, right? <laughs> That's See, what we're that team, about don't here. like it. <laughs> you know, yeah, you've seen LSU for like team. 2012 or 2014 to 2018. It's not good. Not pretty. Probably a different outcome. Just a thought. This is the way that the sport works. Dabo is still holding out hope that his way can win. If Dabo wins without using the transfer portal, it'll be in spite of his style and his resistance to this. It won't be because he stuck to his guns by refusing to make his team better. What he's doing is making a steeper hill for Clemson to climb. He might be able to, to conquer that beast again without using the portal, and he'll go on some soapbox about how Clemson did it the right way, which I'd love to hear Dabble look me in the eye and tell me that Clemson recruited Trevor Lawrence without any sort of extra financial incentive. Tell me, <laughs> tell me that, Dabo. I dare you. It sounds like, based on those aforementioned comments, that eventually, Dabo is going to give in and start actively recruiting the portal. Eventually, he's going to do this. And in a way, though, that would actually frustrate me even more if I'm a Clemson fan. Because if he had just accepted reality in 2019 or 2020, Clemson could have avoided the season ending with a Gatorade bath of Cheez-Its and instead could have been playing in its fifth title game in seven years. Maybe Dabo is okay with getting dumped by a Gatorade cooler full of Cheez-Its. Maybe that's his thing or maybe he prefers potatoes or mayo, whatever the case. If he continues with this, this mindset about the portal, he might get really familiar with those things. I mean, it doesn't have to worry about job security. His buyout is like a gajillion dollars. He can still win a lot of football games doing it Clemson's way, and maybe he will this upcoming season. Or then again, maybe he won't. Let's get back to the original point here. Clemson trying to have a bounce back season, right? Me regretting putting them at number four in my way too early rankings. Sorry, Dabo, if you disagree with that being a bounce back season, uh, 10 wins in a Cheez-It bath is not the standard that you have set for yourself. As you recall, Clemson is trying to have a bounce back season after losing Tony Elliott, who had a rough 2021, but he was Clemson's primary offensive play caller basically ever since Clemson became Clemson in 2015. Significant mm -hmm. piece of that program. By the way, Dabo also trying to figure things out on the defensive side of the ball because he had to replace Brent Venables, who uh, I think on any list of the best defensive minds in the sport, even if you don't have that number one, he's probably in your top three, right? And oh, yeah. Will, you could say that even as somebody who isn't the biggest Venables believer, right? Yeah, I mean, what he's done consistently, I mean, it's so hard to win with defense in this league. And number one, all of Clemson's wins were defense last year. Second, he's been doing it for 10 years, and then, like, he runs that base, like, four down. He hasn't moved away from that, and it works for him. They, they are able to generate pressure and kind of have – like, I'll tell you, man, like, 
it's always like a big deal is made of like the first what 15 scripted plays of that like uh national championship game against joe burrow that defense looked like they were on something like they were unstoppable for that first little bit that he was able to totally game out so yeah i think he's a great a great defensive mind for sure yeah and they, they were really good last year too that's what gets mm-hmm. lost in the shuffle only defense that was better than them in college football was oh by the way georgia who yeah Okay, all right, you'll, you'll take an L there. Most years, that, that's probably really close to the number one defense in college football. I mean, they they were they were stacked, and that's what I, I really sold myself on last year when I predicted Clemson to win a national championship. But going into 2022, you're trying to figure out what a post-Venable, post-Venables world looks like for the first time in a decade. You are number 82 in the country in percentage of returning production, the great stat that Bill Connolly always puts together. Mm-hmm. Also, on the offensive side of the ball, you're hoping that DJ can kind of figure things out after he he failed to have a single game in which he completed 60% of his passes for eight yards per attempt. Is this That's 1984? I, look. <laughs> <laughs> like, how? Like, I, you could do that against air in the ACC. Unbelievable to look back because I, I, I was, I, I, I saw Dabo's comments about how the offense really kind of improved on the stretch. Like, Pull up TJ's game log, man. It, how much did it really improve? Even if you felt like the, the total overall number was better, man, you look back and you're like, this guy, this guy did not come anywhere close to the Dr. Pepper commercial type hype. And if you're running it back with him as your starter, which that's what Clemson is doing because they're not going to the portal, then that is a, a, a major, major risk, and there's no guarantee that it's gonna work out. And if he can't figure things out, and if he doesn't look like the guy who went into Notre Dame and put up all those points, then they're gonna turn to five-star true freshman, Cade Klubnik. He's the backup option for you. I don't necessarily think that's the best formula for success, and maybe there's hope that he can become what Trevor Lawrence was in 2018. That's a lofty expectation <laughs> yeah, to set. just another one of those. Pull that out of the hat, we're all good, man. And see, Trevor Lawrence did it, so therefore, you know, anybody can do it. Jake Fromm took Georgia to a national championship. It's like Jake Fromm also had an unbelievable defense that he was working with as well, but he was still good enough to be able to do that. So my point is, there are a lot of questions about this team and questions that I admittedly overlooked. And the fact that you're not addressing those questions or trying to answer them with the portal is troubling. I think Clemson should be good, and it'll still be one of the better programs in the country, even if Dabo is, even if his way of acknowledging the portal's existence is simply complaining about it. But there's just no way that Clemson is going to compete at the top of the sport like it did in the latter half of the 2010s unless Dabo is willing to adapt. Will, any other thoughts on Dabo, the refusal to to acknowledge the portal and, and use it, even though everybody else at the top is? Yeah, I mean, it's always hard for me to feel sorry for people that are the haves and they choose to be the have-nots, right? Mm. Uh, so he has worked all this time to build Clemson from kind of, I'm not necessarily going to call them a laughing stock, but like Clemsoning was a thing. People, how soon we forget, you know? 2015 and, and, was, was when we were still saying Clemsoning. Yes. Yep. Like, and he's done the hard part. He's built this team from, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a doormat in the ACC to the team that's now viewed as, oh, you guys don't play anyone, you beat everyone so bad. And like, that's, there's no, there's no way to kind of take away from that. He's done something that very, very few uh, people have done. You talk about Bobby Bowden and maybe like Gary Patterson, guys who really just truly built a university from average to great type of situation. That being said, 
you know, you have Michigan State, you have Wake Forest, you have all these random teams just winning through the portal. And to look at that and say, hey, this is working. Here's this new style out there that is easily producing. I mean, in terms of the named guys, it feels like 40 or 50% of the guys, that might just be a bias thing. But you look up and down these like All-American rosters, it's like, oh, this guy started off here and then he ended up here and then da 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 Especially for like at the top top, most guys, you know, instead of getting lost along the way and kind of just forgotten, now guys have a chance to let their talent shine through. So it's hard for me to feel sorry for him when really he's shooting himself in the foot. Uh, the other thing, <clears throat> we talked about this off air, but it's like, you know, I had to go check and see who they hired to replace Tony Elliott and Brent Venables. All in-house. All, All in-house. In-house guys. Yeah. And you look at, you know, what Alabama's doing, you know, getting these guys as consultants, getting guys that are outside of Saban's coaching tree to bring in new ideas. You get how, you know, guys are hiring outside of the SEC, you know, look at these Brian Kelly hires and, and, and um, you know, the Florida hire and like all these different like guys who are going outside of the norm, guys who are getting new minds, guys who are getting new energy in the building. And to look at that season, it would be one thing if they were doing the old like, you know, 2019 LSU or the 2017 Eagles where it's like, okay, we had everything figured out. We just need to bring some guys back from that. It's like, no, you guys had a bad season last year. No matter how you slice it, you know, things weren't great with these great offensive and defensive minds. You need to go find, you know, bring in, you know, Mullen or bring in like some guy as a consultant that's just out there hanging out like Saban always does. The blueprint is right there. Just do it. Just get in, get in some new blood. And it's like, no, they have the classic co-defensive coordinators, which I think is the biggest sham in the world. I hate that the Saints are doing that. I think that, you know, to, to bring in two in-house co-defensive coordinators is just like the absence of making a decision, right? And then you get, oh, wow, we, we scoured the planet for the best offense of mine in the sport of football. We have millions of dollars. Look at that, he was our quarterback's coach. Oh, how crazy, how crazy. The smartest people were hanging out behind the guys we had. We didn't promote them because they weren't as smart as the guys we had, but now they're the, they're the smartest guys on earth. And it's like, I don't buy it, man. I don't know, it's just, seems like college football is going one way, he is going the other way, and I just don't feel sorry for him whatsoever. Here's how I look at this. And, and I'm not saying that Dabo necessarily has to have double digit players from the portal. Okay, not, not saying he's got to go out and get 11, 12 guys to address. And, and he, he, even at a place like Clemson, you're probably going to have more guys transfer out that are coming in, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that, that dynamic is probably not going to change as much as Dabo hates thinking about the possibility that someone could sign a national letter of intent and then maybe after two or three years where it's just not working out, go somewhere else. I know that that drives him nuts and he can't possibly comprehend that as somebody who has been there for more than a decade and has built his entire life there. Look, I get that. You can get three guys. You can be Georgia, you can be Alabama. You can get three guys. Address your specific needs. Oh, we don't have a guy that can stretch the field? Let's go find that guy. Oh, we don't really have an experienced tailback? Let's be Alabama. Let's go out. We'll get Jameer Gibbs from Georgia Tech. We'll address our specific needs and we'll be better for it. And instead of having everybody talk about these issues that we have in the off season, carry over into the season and being this massive storyline because we didn't want to address it, we didn't develop necessarily at the rate that our program demanded, you just go out and you dress it in the portal. It's, it's like some things are simple, some things are not. This seems simple and Dabble just will not do it. Will not do it. Oh yeah, I'll say real quick too. It's like you have your small amount of guys that Dabo thinks fit like the Clemson way or whatever. They get their scholarships, they do whatever. You're absolutely right. It's it's fine to have guys kind of wash out and go other places. 
On the flip side of that, though, it's like you have all these guys floating around that are ready made to play Clemson football. You know they're not going to get lost in college. Yeah. You know that, like, and so it's like you can watch, you know what I'm saying? Like, the dude at Georgia Tech is a great example. It's like nobody was talking about him before this season. Now he's at Alabama. If, if you're Clemson, you are a destination. You are the final destination for 99% of kids. There's no college athlete that you could call up as that was, or sorry, high school athlete, even college, yeah, that you could call up and be like, hey, I don't care. This is tampering. Come join Clemson. They're like, boom. I'm at, you know, East Mississippi State. I'm gone. I'm out of here. My bags are packed. It's like, no, we're just going to opt out of this free talent pool. I'm sorry. It just upsets me because it's not changing. Here's how I look at this. Um, Feinbaum has been, in my opinion, the premier radio personality in the Southeast for decades. I mean, you might not agree with everything Paul says. You might not be a big fan of his show. You don't have to watch his show religiously to at least acknowledge that, right? If Feinbaum refused to participate in a simulcast because he's like, no, I built this legendary career just being on radio and I don't want to or need to be a TV person, he'd be holding himself back. Mm -hmm. His show, his brand, his popularity is more national than ever. He adapted with the times and recognized that his show is set up really, really well for TV. It's almost like Dabo is hoping that this hard stance against the transfer portal is going to help him recruit that much better at the high school level. Like, you know, not to, you know, we don't need to sit here and like talk about like who followed COVID protocols or not. But remember, you know, early in, in like when when COVID became a thing and Delta said that we're not going to sell the middle seat. Right. And they were banking on that business model, pushing more people who are maybe a little bit timid to fly to Delta. And, and they were gonna, that's how they were gonna capitalize by saying we're gonna keep the middle seat open. And it's almost like Dabo was trying to do that with, ho- with hoping that it'll help and, and, and making that pitch to the high school recruits by saying we're only recruiting high school. Look, we're not worried about the portal. We want guys that are gonna be at Clemson from the jump, but it really didn't. Clemson had the number 10 class in the country, which by their own standard, that's a down class. And they've mm-hmm. only got one verbal commitment for 2023. They'll probably still finish really, really well. But my point is, it's not like it, it's paid some crazy dividend. Meanwhile, Notre Dame, with a first time head coach and really tough academic standards that we talk about all the time, they have nine commitments. So far, they have the number one class in 2023, which again, those things will change, but they're they're doing something right in that in that regard. That's the thing, like, speaking of Notre Dame, you can have your values. Lord knows Notre Dame, Michigan, BYU, they all do. Shoot, BYU has as strict of a code as any FBS program in the country, yet they don't stick their nose up at the transfer portal. They went out, they got they got this guy, well, you need to look this guy up. This, this guy is built on a mold. That, yeah, he's a lad, <laughs> as you would say. Kingsley Suamataya. Highest rated offensive lineman in the portal. He absolutely could have helped out that Clemson offensive line. Left Oregon after a year, they got a new coaching staff. All right, you're running a different offense. You don't want to necessarily be a part of an offense that isn't Joe Moorhead. I get it. I totally get it. <laughs> There's going to be BYU. some drop off. We just know that. We just know, of course. He goes to BYU. BYU gets him out of the portal. So I'm not buying Dabo's approach. But he apparently is like, hey, we, we don't need that. We don't need that yet. We don't need help on the offensive line. Doesn't need help in the portal. It's just a crazy thing. Dabo continues to hold on to. All right. BYU portal sounds like a scary place. You come out and you're just chugging espresso, <laughs> singing songs. Ready Can to they go. Take espresso? 
Uh, yeah, that- espresso is like caffeine, so it works for them, but nothing else. So they're just you just pop out of that portal with like a little tie on, singing musicals. And it's like it sounds sounds like a scary place. <laughs> I need to brush up on the BYU code. I need to I need to know that like religiously, to, to where I could just quote it at random points and just sneak it into like if I'm doing like a radio hit or something like that. Just sneak it like a line about a BYU code or something like that. Hey, look, everybody's got their values. BYU, do your thing. Like that's there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Jim McMahon, one of my all time like favorite like football players to be able to follow and all the great clips of him at BYU. His book is awesome, by the way. Read his, read his autobiography from like 1985. It's incredible. Anyway, we don't need to talk about Jim McMahon. Let's instead kick it to another quarterback, Aaron Murray. Always great to talk with Aaron. I decided to, uh, I waited a little bit uh, to talk about uh, his hangover after the natty. Great stories <laughs> about that. Um, talked uh, quarterbacks, uh, some recruitment stuff from back in the day as well. A little bit of everything. Here is Aaron Murray. Now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Georgia legend Aaron Murray. Aaron, uh, I joked that I wanted to wait until I wanted to wait a little bit after um, Georgia won the national championship to talk to you again. Let your hangover kind of subside. You know, you're in your 30s now, like I am. Be honest with us. How long did that hangover last? Oh, I was in pain. I'm not going to lie. And it was so funny because the next day, you know, one, my wife and I are, we're like old people, you know, we, we, we usually put little man down about seven 30. We had a 20 month old, uh, put him down, you know, eat our dinner. And then we're usually in bed about nine o'clock and snoozing away by that nine 30, 10. So, you know, the national championship was a long night for me. Uh, we were, I was up to about three o'clock in the morning, um, at the team hotel, enjoying life and, and partying about an hour later, um, I drove about two hours to start my trip back to Atlanta. Oh my and like, God. I wasn't tired. Like, I was juiced up. Like I felt like I just played a game. So like adrenaline's gone. And, and, and um, you know, so I was like, man, there's no point of me sleeping, you know, laying on a bed in a hotel here in Indianapolis. I might as well start my trek back to Atlanta. So I got like two hours in at six o'clock in the morning. I was like, all right, now it's time for me to, to legitimately get some sleep. Uh, so I found a hotel on the side of the highway, slept for about three hours, you know, then started to drive back the next morning. And, you know, I was obviously exhausted. I was uh, still a little emotional from the night before. And I had to do a couple hits, radio hits. I had to do one where I actually had to pull over the, on the side of the highway to do like a, a Zoom call that was going to be on local local ABC here in Atlanta. And of course, they, they wanted to ask me about the embrace with, with Stetson after the game, the hug, all that you know, like you're tired, you're a little bit hungover, a little bit emotional. I swear, like every, every day interview, I started tearing up a little bit and I'm like, man, <laughs> I feel like such a, you know, you know what I'm uh, doing this, but uh, yeah, man, I, I've not been up that late. Uh, I don't know, man, like 10 years, it's been a minute. So I was, I was hurting for a couple of days afterwards. I don't, I don't blame you. And seeing you that fired up, I mean, with, with around your whole crew, like that was one of the moments to me that kind of really set the scene and getting to see what it meant for a guy like you who has had to talk about 2012, you know, all the time, and like all these different things with Georgia and being you know somebody who's associated with the drought and all that. But was that moment specifically better than any you experienced as a player? Or is it kind of hard to really compare anything as a fan to what you, what you dealt with, you know, in your four years at Georgia? It's, it's different. And, you know, I, cause I had some really fun games. Obviously we got really close to some big ones and it's crazy enough. Like anytime someone approaches me to talk about Georgia football, 
during you know my era when I played, there's always two games they want to talk about. They want to talk about the SEC championship game versus Alabama, and they want to talk about the the game versus Auburn my senior year with the Hail Mary. I'm like, why? For some reason, my two of my games that everyone remembers just have to be traumatic losses. Uh, you know, they do bring up a lot of people want to talk about that LSU game back in 13, which was an incredible awesome. game. You know, like Odell was there and Menenberger and Jarvis. And, you know, we obviously had Todd and some other studs and back and forth, back and forth. Like that was an awesome football game. Uh, but mostly it's the losses. So it's kind of like, oh, can I just, you know, focus on some of the wins would be nice. But as a fan and and, and for me, it's, I guess it's a little bit different too, because I didn't grow up, you know, I didn't grow up a Georgia fan. Yeah. You know, my first game I watched for Georgia, I was actually rooting against Georgia. I was rooting for Hawaii in, in the Sugar Bowl back in, you know, I think it was 07. Yeah. Colt because Brennan. I, knew, I knew Colt Brennan really well um, from the Elite 11. I really liked him a lot. We built a good bond when I was at that camp. So I was rooting for him. When Georgia comes out, everyone remembers the black jerseys. They just dominate Hawaii. And I was like, damn, this, this team's legit. Let me check them out. And so like that was the beginning of my knowledge of what Georgia football is. So I felt like for me, there has been a lot of learning over the past 10 years of the traditions, the players, like someone's like, Oh, do you remember this game back in the eighties or nineties? And this player, I'm like, dude, my beginning of Georgia football knowledge started in 2008. Like I've had to learn so much in the past, you know, 10 to 15 years. So, you know, I feel like I've gotten to the point now where obviously, you know, I love Georgia Georgia is my team, obviously, for a lot of reasons. Uh, so that emotional tie to them now as a fan, not just as a player, really came out a lot during you know the, the national championship run and then the national championship victory. So um, different, definitely different feeling, but uh, it, it's more of a, you know, I admire those guys and, 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 and all the hard work they had to put into to winning a championship. Okay, I'm going to bring up the 2012 SEC championship, and I'm not, I'm, we don't need to get into specifics or anything like that, but I, I watched that national championship this past year play out and I immediately go to the sliding doors. And I think it's fascinating to look back on 2012 SEC championship, which, you know, well-documented, like if you guys had won that game, we've talked about it before. You guys would have kicked the crap out of Notre Dame. Nobody can be convinced otherwise outside of South Bend, but how long do you think Mark Rick would have been at Georgia if he had been the guy to end the drought? And are we even having this conversation? Is Kirby the head coach of Georgia with the timing and the way that it could have played out? Like, have you ever kind of thought about that, about what that sliding door could have been for Mark Rick and the rest of his career at Georgia? Yeah, it would have extended it. I think there's no doubt about that, that Mark Rick's career would have gone on. And and I know Kirby was at the point of his career leaving Alabama where it was time for him to take that next step. So if Georgia wasn't open, he would have gone somewhere else. Who knows how long Rick would have lasted. Could he have gone to 2018, 19, 20, yeah. you know, who knows? Um, could he have gone until, you know, obviously some of the health issues that have arisen here in the past two years, like would that have been, been the end of coach Rick as a head coach of the university of Georgia. And I, I think it would have like, if, if coach Rick would have won the national championship, Obviously, recruiting goes through the roof because yep. now you're a national championship. You can recruit to that. And, and Kirby's done a tremendous job here in the past three months of making sure that anytime a recruits on campus, that he's in front of the trophy and taking pictures of the trophy. Like, that's huge. You know, it's great to take a picture of a national championship trophy from 1980. It's a lot cooler and better for recruiting nowadays, especially with social media, to take a picture of the current national championship trophy. So I think, you know, knowing you know, the respect that Coach Rick had on campus, the respect that the fans had for Coach Rick, donors, um, athletic director, all that good stuff. If we would have won a national championship back in, in, in 12, 
I think Coach Rick would have been saying, here, you, you coach as long as you want. This is, this is your team. You take it until you want to retire kind of mentality. So, yes, I think it would have been Coach Rick, you know, coaching probably to 2020 uh, when, when unfortunately all the stuff has come out about his health. And then George would have had to figure out what now uh, and who knows where Kirby would have been. You know, obviously he probably would have taken some other SEC job most likely. You know, I don't know. South Carolina. Yeah, yeah South Carolina. So that's, that's, it's, it's crazy how, you know, what has transpired. Obviously, you know, I think a lot of fans are extremely happy and they should be with what Kirby's done from the moment he stepped on campus to obviously that national championship that was won a few months back. I went on your, uh, your Sirius XM show and you basically asked me the question like, Hey, Georgia repeat. I mean, it's, it's going to be the, comp- the topic of conversation in Athens, understandably. So, especially when we haven't seen it in a decade and I, I more or less said, you know, there's a reason why we haven't seen anybody do this since Alabama 2011, 2012, again, not to just keep talking about 2012, but basically like if there was a guy who could do it, you would think it'd be somebody who's wired like Kirby. What have you kind of seen from him in these last, I guess, what has it been, two and a half months post-national championship to suggest that he is going to be capable of leading a run like that? Well, I think he's brought in some some great coaches. I think that's been the biggest thing, too. I mean, you look at Alabama and what do they do? They reload players, but they also reload when it comes to the coaching staff and all the assistants they bring in as well. So you see the additions of Brian McClendon. You see the additions of Stacey Searles at the offensive line coach. Obviously, Will Muschamp was already on staff, ready to help out when needed, when that DC position was needed to be filled. Obviously, you bring in Mike Bobo. So the amount of football minds in the building right now, assisting in every little facet is is absolutely tremendous and that's something that Alabama's built. And obviously you see the recruiting that Kirby's done here in the past, you know, five years since he really set foot on Athens as as kind of stockpiled four and five star guys ready for their moment to go out there and excel. And and you know, I've been to the facility, probably one of the nicest facilities in, in the country. You know, so you got the facilities, you got the recruits, you got the coaches, you got the checkbooks open from all the donors of hey, what do you need? We're here to, to write those checks. Uh, you got incredible NIL opportunity because that's a big part of what these kids want nowadays. They want to go out there and make NIL money. Yeah. You're in Athens. It's a great college town, lots of businesses in Athens, and you're only 60 minutes away from Atlanta, Georgia, which has a ton of Fortune 500 companies. So to me, they are checking off every single box to continue to recruit at an extremely high level. So yeah, he's built this program in, in, in a fashion where, you know, I think, I think Nick Saban said it before, George is a sleeping giant because of everything that Athens has to offer because of the proximity to Atlanta. Um, it's just an easy place to recruit to. And now you have a coaching staff that's going to help take you to the next level. Now you're seeing guys getting drafted in the first round. Now you're seeing guys getting drafted in the second, third round. You're going to start seeing guys win individual awards as well. It's uh, it's going to be really fun to see this team over the next 10 years. I've said it before. I would not be surprised if Kirby makes – you know, maybe not the identical run that Saban's made since, you know, 2007, 2008, but I can see Georgia winning two national championships in the next 10 to 15 years. Easily. Um, and everybody was wondering about the quarterback situation. If you can figure that out, then surely that'll be kind of the last thing 
I don't think Carson Beck is going to play down at Georgia this year. And look, everybody's kind of waiting, you know, hoping that, that maybe Carson Beck and Brock Vandegrift can both exist in this world in which Stetson's going to be the guy. I think there's no question Stetson's the guy unless he gets hurt, unless something off the field happens. But you love yourself from Carson Beck. Like you are really, really high on him. I've seen the comments, you know, that you that you uh that you gave to Dog Nation and talking about the arm talent and all those different things. Why do you think he is a guy that has that kind of upside? And do you think he has a future at Georgia? I do. I think to me, it popped off about two years ago when I first saw him in a scrimmage. And I was like, man, this kid for a young football player just out of high school had some really good composure in the pocket. And you can just tell when someone's a natural thrower of the football. Uh, I I always say it's very similar to a golf swing. If you watch someone who just has a very – the pros – it's a very effortless, it looks smooth, very, you know, great rhythm, you know, the, the, the ability to use your lower body to then generate, uh, you know, the, the power to allow your upper body to come through the ball. Like it's, it's, it's poetry, you know, the best golfers are like, man, how do they make it look so smooth? For me, example, you look at me and it looks like I'm trying to like literally beat the ball up. You're like, Danny, <laughs> like, try the last, like try not to hit the ball so damn hard. And when you watch Carson throw the football, it's more of the, the professional motion. It's smooth. The lower body's in sync. The upper body then follows, and the arm is there just guiding the football to where he wants to throw it. it, it it's a beautiful motion. It's effortless. He can make all the throws you want. But I always tell people it's not just about throwing the football. I'm not I'm, – I'm, I'm a good thrower of the football. I am not a great thrower of the football. I was a great leader. Uh, I was a competitor. Uh, I worked my tail off to make sure that all the guys around me could play at a high level by putting those guys in the right situation. I was nowhere near as talented as most of the other guys that we competed at. I'm a six foot quarterback with arm, average arm strength. As Stetson proved, you can win a football game by being a six foot or below quarterback with our average arm strength. If you are a great leader and mentally you can put those guys around you in a better position. So I think Carson is now continuing to get the mental part of the game, the leadership component of the game. And if he can pair that up with his just natural gift of him throwing a football, it's a really deadly combination. So I anticipate Carson to be number two this year. Uh, Stetson's the guy. I think that obviously I'm, I'm really excited about Stetson being, you know, QB one and actually given the reins in spring and fall camp. But I do think if something does happen to Stetson, I think the coaching staff is starting to feel more and more comfortable with Carson, the way he's performed in spring, obviously he continues that and hopefully in the summer and fall camp that um, I think Carson should be QB one come 2023. I think he's the guy right now uh, based on what I've seen in practice you know, I like, I like, you know, Brock Vandegriff. I think he's an athletic, you know, athletic. I like the way he's progressed with his motion over the past year. I just think with the way this offense is run right now, I think Carson should be the guy front runner, in my opinion, come next spring. Just going to be a tough sell. It's going to be a tough sell. Somebody's entering year three and, and keeping both of those guys around, you know, Kirby's going to do everything in his power to make it happen. But even Stetson, you know, I think Stetson kind of came back, and he has that meeting after he goes on the, the victory parade tour, all those different things. And he has that meeting with Kirby where like, it seems like, and this is based on what we've seen both of them kind of say, it was, says it's like, I, I heard some things I wanted to hear. I heard some things that maybe I didn't want to hear. And usually guys coming off a national championship don't hear that. What did you kind of make of that situation? Cause it kind of seemed like to me that Kirby said more or less like, yeah, like if you come back, great. If not like, Hey, well, we got JT, we'll, we'll be all right. And then he ends up, you know, deciding to come back. But what did you kind of make from that whole situation? 
Well, it, it is a tricky situation because obviously as a coach, you have to plan for now, but you also have to plan for the future. I mean, I had, listen, I had a similar conversation with Coach Rick, you know, after that SC championship game back in 2012, he sat me down and said, hey, Aaron, what, what are you going to do? Like, are you going to the NFL draft or are you coming back to be our starting quarterback? Like, I want you back, but, you know, we have to plan one way or the other. I mean, it comes down to roster numbers. It comes down to how do we recruit. And, and, and obviously nowadays it's even harder because, you know, the transfer portal wasn't as big of a thing back then as it is now because of how easy it is for a kid to pick up and leave. You know, Hudson Mason, who was my backup, Maya said, screw this. I want to play now. I'm transferring because I know I can play immediately next year. You know, for him and, you know, knowing that, hey, if I transfer, I have to sit out, you know, maybe I just stay another year and, and kind of wait my turn because Aaron only has one more year. So that kind of could have played into it as well. So I think, like I said, for coaches, they have to figure out, you know, what they need to do to keep kids on the roster. So it's a lot harder to manage those situations, especially at a quarterback spot where only one guy can really play. But I think Kirby Wine sets him back. I do. You know, I think the way he played last season – the way he played in the Orange Bowl, the way obviously he played, especially in the second half of the national championship game, guys in that locker room respect what he can do. Plus, you look at the other guys on that roster right now, a lot of youth. Um, and I just don't know if he felt comfortable saying, hey, we're ready right now to give the reins to Carson. Hey, we're ready to right now to give the reins to Brock. I think Setson's a guy that you can rely on. He's a great leader in the locker room. He's a great leader in that quarterback room. And if you feel like you do have that potential next stud, you know, you know, as a freshman or sophomore in the quarterback room, let them continue to, to groom for another season before handing off the reins to one of them next spring. What should we expect from Eric Gilbert this year? Hopefully just get him on the field. Uh, I think, you know, to me, that's, that's the big thing. We know how talented he was back from his days at LSU. You, you pair him with, you know, what Georgia has at the tight end position. I know he's a little bit more of a hybrid guy and maybe classify him as a receiver. I'm, this is to me the first time I'm actually excited about Georgia receivers. Cause for those who've seen it, like I've been really down on that position for the past few years. I think it's been very average. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously Pickens being hurt and not performing to his full potential game in and game out has really bugged me a little bit the past couple of years. Um, you've seen guys just battling injuries left and right. Like there's never been that consistency of this is our core three or four guys. Uh, and obviously it's been great to see Bowers step up. Bowers making some plays. Obviously hope you, you hope Washington's healthy next year. He's a big body with a lot of big, you know, big play potential. You get those two on the field. You're like, man, that, that's impressive. Uh, A.D. Mitchell, I think, is going to be an absolute stud. He's a physical specimen. Uh, he's someone that I think is maturing and go- growing confidence from, from, you know, from you know, talking with Bobo and McClendon. McConkie is a big, th- you know, big play threat. Those are two young guys I think you're going to see take a massive step in the right direction next year. You throw in Gilbert, you throw in Brock Bowers, and you throw in, in, in Darnell Washington – and all of a sudden, like, holy smokes, like this team is legitimately really darn good when it comes to being able to create explosive plays down the field. But it, it still goes back to the quarterback position for me. It's not easy to create rhythm when for the past two years, your starting quarterback has been on the bench for spring and fall camp. It's good like, they have not had an opportunity as an offense to say, hey, this is our QB one and we're going to build the offense around him. And that guy is going to be our guy all year. Two years ago, it was a quarterback battle. You had guys transferring from, you know, obviously Wake Forest. Um, Newman came in. He was supposed to be the guy. He ends up not playing. 
you have a couple other guys come in, they get the reps, and then all of a sudden they don't perform. And then Stetson, who had gotten no reps in spring, obviously there was no spring ball, and had zero reps in fall camp, was then said, hey, you are the, you're the starting quarterback. You know, he, no reps at all, goes in there and does his thing. Then JT comes in later on in the season, performs well. JT is now the guy in spring and fall camp. Stetson gets no reps. JT gets hurt. Once again, Stetson has to go out there and be QB1. And then you're talking about all the injuries that you had at the receiving position. So there has been zero opportunity to have a quarterback and his receivers all be healthy enough to build the chemistry that you need to be successful. It's all been, hey, let's just figure it out as we go, which is not a, a good recipe. And luckily for Georgia, they had a defense that kind of you know was, was absolutely tremendous and kind of allowed the offense to get better as the season went along. So I think the fact that you get Stetson, he, he's got a good chemistry with those guys already. They have spring, summer, and fall camp to continue to build that chemistry. This could be an offense that takes that next step to, to help a defense that's going to be a little bit younger than what we saw last year. Um, on a very unrelated note, I don't think I've ever asked you about a recruiting story. Like, did, did Urban come to your cafeteria one day and tell you, like, you sucked or, or something like that? Because you're down, you were down to Florida and UCLA at the very end there. But, like, is there, is there like, some, some recruiting story that you have? Because that was kind of right before all of these things became such national news all the time where we kind of knew, like, if, if you were a five-star quarterback, we were going to know if, if, you, if you went to the bathroom in a facility. Not like Back then, it's a little bit different, but is there like a story that kind of stands out with any of those schools? No, I think the biggest reason why I didn't commit to Florida was, you know, Dan Mullen was on his way out. I think a lot of people knew at that time, Dan was ready to take that next step and be a head coach somewhere. It wasn't official yet, but that was kind of the rumblings. And, you know, for, for a quarterback, the guy that I was going to work more with, it was not the head coach. It wasn't going to be Coach Rick. It wasn't going to be Urban Meyer. It was going to be Dan Mullen or Mike Bobo. And I was like, man, I don't want to commit to someone who may end up leaving, you know, maybe a new offense, you know, obviously a new OC comes in, changes the offense up a little bit or makes his own twist on it. Like, that's just not my thing. Or maybe that new offensive coordinator doesn't like me. Maybe he has someone he's going to bring in that's going to be the starting quarterback. I knew Mike Bobo trusted me. I knew that he, he, he was going to give me an opportunity to be the next quarterback at Georgia. I obviously loved the system that they had. You know, Matthew Stafford was going to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. It was more of a pro-style offense, which was more appeasing to quarterbacks back then compared to the spread offense. Yeah. Um, now it's the opposite. Now you don't want to go to a pro offense. You want to go to a spread offense. It's crazy how things have changed. So a lot of that geared me towards, okay, I know Mike Bobo is going to be there. I know Coach Rick is going to be there. And also they didn't really have any quarterbacks on the roster. You know, Stafford was leaving. You had Joe Cox, you had Logan Gray. And then, you know, Bobo told me, he's like, Hey, we're going to bring in two quarterbacks during your class, which was great. Florida had Tim Tebow, John Brantley and Cam Newton. Part of so them, yeah. You walk into that room. You're like, damn, like this is a really impressive quarterback room. Obviously Cam is a giant human being and Dan Mullen's on his way out. So a lot of that obviously played into my decision to end up going to, to Georgia over Florida. You have new Heisel crap all the time. Your coworker about not going to UCLA and him not winning that battle. I, he, to me, he won the battle. I was ready to commit to UCLA. I was done. I mean, we, Rick was, as, as a lot of people know, I mean, one of the most charismatic guys you could meet, you know, we went out to UCLA he picked us up and we, you know, we went straight to the Rose Bowl first. And it's like my dad, myself and coach Neuheisel and, and we're in 50 yard line looking around. And I mean, it's, it's gorgeous. It's just absolutely beautiful. You know, goosebumps. You're like, okay, this is awesome. Then you go to campus 
UCLA, one of the most beautiful campuses uh, in America, right there in the middle of Beverly Hills. And, you know, after that visit, I told my dad, I was like, man, I'm ready to commit. Like, sign me up. I want to be a Bruin. I want to live in LA. I want to play in the Rose Bowl. And it was really my dad who screwed it up because my dad's like, hey, listen, you commit. Your mother and I will, you know, we'll make, we'll maybe make four or five of your games. Like, we could not physically get on a plane and fly out to LA every single week yeah. to watch you play. It's just, it's going to be a lot. It's very taxing. So, you know, he was kind of my buzzkill. He ruined that opportunity for me. <laughs> to go out there and live that LA dream. But obviously everything worked out extremely well, uh, you know, going to Georgia and staying in the SEC. But yeah, Rick was a, a master recruiter and uh, it's an easy pitch to go out there and, and live, live in LA and play, play in the Rose Bowl. Uh, one last thing for you. Um, and I know you got to run here. You're actually, you got players lounge duties that you're, that you're uh, responsible for today. Um, Peter Burns broke it down for us. Um, I know he's just kind of piggybacking off of your success. So, you know, he, you're the real brains behind the operation with what you guys have going on, but just kind of tell the people what exactly you're doing and how, I mean, even in the last couple months, I feel like you guys are just keep continuing to add more and more stuff with this thing. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're super excited. You know, we started off, uh, listen, I knew nothing about NFT six months ago, and I, I've learned a ton since. And essentially what we break it down as this is just your digital ticket. You know, you use a ticket to get into a game on your phone nowadays to get access to the stadium. All an NFT is is a digital ticket that gives you access to our community. Our community right now is 85 of the top players in the country from Georgia to Auburn to Alabama, Texas, Oklahoma, UNC, Tennessee, uh, it's going to be Florida and Miami here really soon as well. So, you know, we're creating an atmosphere uh, in a community where fans get to interact with players, whether it's on our discord, we're doing tailgates, we're doing um, live events, Q and a sessions, video game tournaments, really fun activities. You know, essentially what we're t- telling our players is, Hey, what do you like to do? Let's connect you with those activities with those who own these NFTs at these schools. So we're having a lot of fun doing it. Uh, the fans are loving the interaction they're getting with both current and former student athletes. Uh, so it's a really fun community. We're really excited about the project. Um, we're bringing it to about 10 to 15 schools here uh, this season. We'll be rolling out these projects here in the next six months. So just make sure you check it out at theplayerslounge.com. You can see all of it on my social media at Aaron Murray 11 um, and, and learn a little bit more about what we're doing. See the players that your favorite schools have to offer, which, like I said, you're going to get all these opportunities to interact with them in a more intimate way compared to just you know, going to a stadium and watching them play on every, you know, every Saturday in the fall. Great stuff, man. Really, really appreciate the time. We'll talk soon. All right, brother. Appreciate it. How about this one? I call it bold and bright. More like belongs in the trash. <laughs> Sorry, I must have missed that one. Bold and brash. SEC running backs 2022 did quarterbacks in the SEC a couple weeks ago running backs the discussion today before we dig into the predictions from the Facebook group last year we dubbed it return of the back mm-hmm. um, I don't I don't have a great name for this year it's a working title nothing is whack with backs is what I'm going for <laughs> okay a little wordy well yeah well, this is enough. what the offseason is for you got to grind yeah. through the offseason to where you get everything tight you know for week one yes we, we cross out the o in the word offseason that's now a swear word in college football culture we're not allowed to say offseason we don't want to upset Josh Pate all right <laughs> we don't say the word offseason um but yeah like we're I I feel like we are in a in an interesting spot with SEC running backs because 
everything kind of feels like a bold prediction as we will get to with some of these comments. Like even if I said Tank Bigsby will lead the SEC in rushing, that's still kind of bold because the quarterback situation <laughs> in Auburn, uh, yeah. And uh, I, I'd expect him to probably share some of those duties with Jarquez Hunter. So you're looking at that thinking, well, uh, he was fourth in the SEC in rushing this past year. So could he make that leap? Possibly, but it'll t- kind of take all these things uh, lining up for him. Two things can be true at the same time. One is that I think your preseason all SEC backs for first team, they're going to be really obvious. Bar, barring an injury or something like that, I if it's not Tank Bigsby and Chris Rodriguez, I'll be stunned. Okay? Mm-hmm. Like that's uh, conventional wisdom says that's the way this thing plays out. But as I always say, that's just based on what we've already seen from them, not necessarily predicting who will have the most production. At least that's the way that you're supposed to approach these things. Not everybody does that. I get it. Right. Um, as much as I think C-Rod has such a high floor because of his running style with the yards after contact, there's no way that I would bet the house on him to lead the league in rushing. Part of that is because I think we could see a little bit of a more pass-heavy approach with Kentucky, Will Levis coming back. Part of that is because the SEC has this new trend with Power 5 running backs and Power 5 transfer running backs, to be clear. Will, this was, uh, so this was something that we, we brought up on, uh, on Cast Interference. Go subscribe to the Saturday Down South uh, YouTube channel if you have not done that. In the playoff era, there are only two instances in which a Power 5 transfer came into the SEC and finished in the top 10 in rushing. I mean, that's it. Two examples of that. Let me repeat that. It's a little bit wordy. In the playoff era, there are only two instances in which a Power 5 transfer came into the SEC and finished in the top 10 in rushing. Those guys were Trey Carson, Keyshawn Vaughn. That's it. Man, right. Keyshawn Vaughn was a lad. I miss him. Love, love me some Red Mamba. All right, big fan, big fan. Back in the day, uh, whenever he does anything for the Bucks, I think I still follow him on, on Instagram or something like that. Wait, whenever he does anything for the Bucks, I'm like, oh, yep, we we knew, we knew back in the day. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I did a feature on him in like 20. Was that 2018? Eh, that was probably 2019. But even I remember watching him in Illinois and thinking, this guy's really good. And then mm-hmm. Lovey Smith just decided he's not going to play him for whatever reason. Bold strategy worked out really well for Illinois. Imagine um, employing Lovey Smith. Well, yeah, couldn't be an NFL team after he failed again. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, it, it makes a lot of sense, though, why that number is so low and why that is also going to change in the 2020s, probably as soon as this year, actually. Think about the old transfer rules as with undergrads sitting a year. If you're running back, your shelf life is limited. We know that. You can also still get opportunities if you're a running back because it's not like quarterback where you can be the backup and only playing garbage time. Like if if you're a decent running back, you should be getting some sort of run and then it's just kind of up to you what you do with it. So there aren't many scenarios where a guy would go, well, I'm gonna leave my school to go sit a year and try and play more in the SEC, mm-hmm. all right? just doesn't really happen like that. If you're a graduate transfer running back and you're good enough to go to the SEC, like you're just gonna go pro, right? In the pre-changed transfer portal rules, that was the logic, which makes a lot of sense. I could probably be sold on all four of these power five transfers 
at least finishing in the top 10 in the SEC in rushing, and maybe one of them will end up winning the rushing title. Uh, Nathaniel Pete, kid that Mizzou got from Stanford, Jameer Gibbs, a guy that we already brought up, um, Georgia Tech to Alabama, mm -hmm. and then Noah Kane at LSU, a guy I've liked for a really long time coming from Penn State, and then Zach Evans, one of the wildest recruitments <laughs> you will ever see going from TCU to Ole Miss. Listen, uh, we gotta pitch the hip in somewhere because one thing about that dude is when he's in fact playing football, he's very good at. Until then, who, any man's game, but once you can get him eligible and in pads, pretty good player. <laughs> we haven't done a, a real Zach Evans deep dive. That might be coming. That might that might be, maybe that'll be like a June or a July podcast or something like that. Just to get into my theory that you can put Zach Evans' name into a search engine with any Power 5 school and you will get a result. Yeah. <laughs> That's how wild it was. But now he's at Ole Miss and he's in a really good situation in an offense that quite frankly needs running backs. They added Ulysses Bentley, the fourth all-name team captain, all-name team Hall of Famer, added him from SMU. That backfield we know is typically really good with Lane running the offense. Um, okay, so Wanted to kind of address this with, with the Facebook group. We can revisit these predictions, right? Like, I don't want to shame anyone too badly for making this prediction in April. It's running back. You know, mm -hmm. guys get injured, things happen, the portal happens. So these are preemptive, but predictions are fun. And I don't want to be the only one that makes predictions on this. And I want to, to have you feel like you're the only one that makes predictions. So mm -hmm. um, any, any thoughts, maybe SEC-wide, before we get into the Facebook comments? Well, let me ask you this. So last year you were dead on the money about um, Kevin Harris kind of being the guy that would fall off this year. Do you see another guy with that similar trajectory or is everything just so wide open that there's not really enough favorites for a guy to kind of fall out of faith? Yeah, uh, shout out to SEC StatCat, um, by the way, who is on top of that, like very much. Like when, when I saw some of those some of those numbers with the yards after contact, the yards before first contact, that's what kind of tipped me off into the, oh, yeah, Kevin Harris might have a little bit of regression this year. Um, I don't necessarily think there's nobody that's getting that kind of love in the preseason who I would expect to fall off that way because there's not really a lot of guys in that spot. Right. Who, I mean, I, that's why I think those first team all SEC backs are so clear, right? Mm -hmm. Chris Rodriguez and Tank Bigsby might be the only two guys who are kind of eligible for that. You yeah, know? Tank Bigsby's a guy too, though, especially for last year. It's like if he just kind of falls off, it's like, yeah, that's probably not totally even his fault. Like, no one's yeah. really, you know what I'm saying? Like, he was just kind of mismanaged last year. They had the whole, like, portal thing. And so now it's like, yeah, Auburn, like, it doesn't feel like there's a reality in which they are good and he is bad. It's like, uh, maybe they'll just kind of mismanage him. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but to, to answer your question, yeah, there's nobody who's maybe like in that preseason All-American conversation who I'm kind of looking at and saying, ah, you know, maybe look beyond the cumulative numbers and kind right. of dig into stuff a little bit more. There's nobody really that fits that build this year. Maybe there, maybe maybe people will be saying that about Chris Rodriguez and it'll be a little bit out of nowhere. Although, again, with some of the advanced numbers that you kind of look at, I think that would suggest he's still going to be able to have production no matter what offense he's playing. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, Facebook comments. Got some good ones, some really good ones. Man, some of y'all went really in depth, I love it. Um, Sean DeBerry says, Kendall Milton is the best back in the SEC. That got a lot of love. <laughs> he, he very well could be, very well could be. Um, I, I think we're in a different place with Georgia as we talk about running backs. And I don't know that all of us have have quite gotten there. I, I've been, I, I meant to look the, the stat up about 
the last time Georgia had a uh, a postseason first team of all SEC back. Because mm-hmm. um, it's been a minute. It's been a minute. Like it might. I think Swift was Swift might have been in 2018. He might have been in 2018. But even Swift shared a backfield with Elijah Holyfield. Like, yep. Never really kind of got that big time workload that we we come to expect. So if, if Kendall Milton is going to be the best back in the SEC, he's going to kind of have to do what we've seen Georgia get away from a bit in the Kirby Smart era. And obviously, like they're really high in Edwards as well. And Georgia always has this just stable of backs. It's absurd, but that's the uh, thing. Like, it's like it's almost like <laughs> it's it's not like they went from one bell cow back to like a couple of other guys. It's like no, they just have five bell cow backs. <laughs> like yeah. every cycle, it's like like yeah, you're right because it's like you don't really feel like like the one guy showstopper name. And they didn't even really have it last year. But it's like everybody who got the ball was doing pretty well. Like it kind of all turned into being better than one guy. You know. Yeah, some days Chubb was the guy, and you're like, all right, you need you need to feed him. This is this is his time. And then other days, you would look at, and see you you would see Cook kind of take off, and like, all right, now now is the chance. All you know these high, this hybrid role that we've been talking about him for so long. Now he needs to be getting this kind of love. Kendall Milton could be a star. He could absolutely be that guy. Georgia fans have been waiting for this guy to get his opportunities, and he should get plenty of them this year, especially in that offense. Um, I just think that Georgia just always has so many guys now, and mm-hmm. it's tough to pencil any one of them in to have the volume that it would take. And as we often see, it takes a guy who gets volume like a Tyler Beatty or like a few years ago, <laughs> Travion Williams, to kind of be like the best back in the SEC. It's always usually, you know, even Najee Harris, Najee got so much volume and was clearly like the workhorse feature back in, in 2020. Um, but yeah, um, Kendall Milton's gonna be probably really good. Really, really good. Uh, let's go to this one from Mickey Sheremy. Uh, Mickey says, John Emery Jr. is the most underrated running back heading into next year. I'm glad he's eligible. (laughs) I'm glad we got that worked out. Mm -hmm. All right. Guys have sat for worse reasons than that. I've sat for better reasons than that. Mm -hmm. I want to see what it looks like with a guy who knows offensive line play. Brian Kelly does. Yep. He really does. I am probably taking the over on any sort of LSU rushing projection this year because I like Noah Kane as well. Mm-hmm. My belief that Noah Kane will succeed in better surroundings with better offensive line play, with a better offensive mind, with a quarterback who can actually stretch the field a little bit, which Sean Clifford didn't really do, and if he stays healthy. My belief in Noah Kane is the only thing that's kind of holding me back from agreeing with that take. but. Are you high on John Emery and thinking that he's finally set up to succeed? I mean, it's okay. So, uh, I like John Emery. I think underrated is almost impossible for someone in his situation because he was so highly rated and then kind of just fell off. And then like every year has just kind of been like, oh, this is the John Emery year. I think he's going to play well for reasons that you just stated. I mean, I think that, like, we can't do worse than LSU's line play did, especially at the start of last year. And so, so once bad. you throw in – and, by the way, going really quickly back to that Clemson thing, good luck if Dabo ends up getting another job and having to rebuild a roster the way that Brian Kelly has because Yikes. we're talking about maybe four of five new starting offensive linemen in Death Valley. So that's something that will excite you because that offensive line group was horrible. So, uh, so point being, like, yeah, I think that finally, you know, he has enough – 
uh, adults around him who know what they're doing. I, I love that clip of Dinbrock talking to him and saying like, hey, you know, we're gonna get you your carries. Like, don't worry about it. I just want you to get right. And it's like, feels like for, for the first time, like I said, they just have adults in the room on offense since 2019. And we have guys who are actually invested in developing these guys and not just kind of like buddies with them. And I think that, that this is gonna be the first year of structure for him. Like you said, Kane, probably even more so than him because Kane is a guy who started off super high, fell way off a cliff. And so I really want to see them work together and hopefully kind of build back their draft stocks. Cause obviously when you see his highlights, he's, he's electric, man. Yeah. Both of them came into, came into college with a different set of expectations mm-hmm. than what their career uh, has been thus far. And that, that would absolutely be a, uh, an interesting LSU storyline is new coaching staff kind of getting these backs right after just kind of being, I don't want to say an obscurity because Noah Kane was, was better than that. I thought at Penn state, but man, just like not really getting going to the level that we thought was possible <clears throat> could absolutely play out for both of those guys this year. Um, let's go to this one from Jay Woody. Jay's got a really long answer for us, but a good one. Um, Jay says, I've been saying that I think Bama is going to start a little more old school until the receiver picture clarifies a little, but the surprise is going to be Arkansas. Uh, Wagner, he's referring to Dalton Wagner, the Arkansas offensive lineman. Uh, returning was huge, and they have three very respectable backs, mm-hmm. uh, and I think they have that thunder and lightning feel like Arkansas used to have. I know uh, KJ Jefferson is the star, but his mobility only helps here. I really think they have a chance to be exciting this year. I say this because I, I agree with Jay. Like, I agree 100%. Do we know how good Arkansas's running game was last year? Like, do people realize they had the best rushing attack in the SEC? No, they sure don't. That's news to me, honestly. Number one in the SEC. Number seven in the country. They were really, really good. And Traylon Smith, who... Um, who transferred, he's transferred to TCU. He's gonna probably, he's gonna try and take Zach Evans' job. Him transferring was like the least surprising thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> because you look around, you're like, oh yeah, uh, AJ Green is gonna be a stud. Rocket Sanders, Dominique Johnson, these guys who already look like they are ready to kind of take that and run with it. Jay's right, they got depth, they got offensive line play. Just pencil that in for, for Arkansas moving forward. And it's interesting, um, I didn't realize this until, until today. I don't know why I didn't process this. The top three rushing attacks in the SEC, Arkansas, Ole Miss, Tennessee. Tempo, tempo, tempo. Yep. You wouldn't look at any any one of those backs, backfields and say one specific guy was the reason they were there. And meanwhile, Mizzou was like, I think Mizzou was like eighth <laughs> in the SEC in rushing. Because all their rushing was dependent on Tyler Beatty and these, these backfields that have several guys prolific florida florida's the same way i mean even though we talked florida was number four in the sec you know we talked about how damian pierce wasn't really getting utilized in the way that he should have in that high volume role florida still had a really good running game even with that limited usage but it is kind of interesting to see that uh, i look they they could lead the sec in rushing again and it wouldn't be necessarily a surprising at all so i that, that was a weird way of saying i agree with what jay is saying but also at the same time like they were they were that good last year too yeah, that, that's a really good point. And like, I'm, I love like, you know, offensive game plans and like talking about these different things. And, and you're right about that. It's like, you would think, right, Mizzou would be number one because they have the number one bell cow running back. But it's like, no, especially today, it's all about, you know, open space, right? And especially if you have that quarterback, 
you know, the yard, the field doesn't care who's running the ball, right? So it's like, while it's good to have the preseason and postseason, like accolades and stuff like that, at the end of the day, it's like, I'm sure Arkansas and I'm sure Bryles with that offense would be more than happy to take number one in the conference, be rotating guys out of there to where they're fresh. Yeah. And then Jefferson is obviously like a true, true dual threat to where you don't know what's going to happen every time they snap the ball at Arkansas. And it's so like, yeah, that's a great point, man. Look at Tennessee, look at Arkansas, and even Ole Miss, and you look at like Snoop Connor and the numbers he had last year, especially in the red zone. Nobody was talking about that because the quarterbacks got the love. You know what's interesting too? This is this this blew me away. Bama was tenth in the SEC in rushing last year. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it checks out, I guess. You know, because I mean it, I know the offensive line issues were, yeah. were a big thing, but still tenth. That's it. Yeah, I mean, you're right. That's got to be the lowest they've been, right? I mean, that's that that would actually be, like, a good thing. Is like, that's got to be the lowest they've been in the SEC. But it has to be. Yeah, because what would happen was when stuff broke down, it was just Bryce Young, and he wasn't, like, a traditional sense dual-threat quarterback. It's not like he was running a lot of, like, read options and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, that makes sense, but it's shocking at the same time. Yeah, and, and I think I, I also agree that they could be a little bit more – um, they could be a little bit more backfield heavy, especially as they have those guys healthy, mm-hmm. knowing that injuries have been an issue for Trey Sanders, they've been an issue for Roy Dell Williams, Jace McClellan, and even if we think Gibbs is kind of emerged into the guy and he's going to be like clearly the bell cow, you still would love to be able to lean on those backs early on while they're active, while they're healthy, and not necessarily have to do that later in the year while you figure out those things mm-hmm. at receiver. Um, okay, what we got here? Uh, Brad Paget says, Chris Rodriguez leads the SEC in rushing and breaks UK's career rushing record. Um, like I said, like everything is bold, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, C-Rod needs about 1,100 yards to break Benny Snell's record. It's a, it's a little bit over, which if he stays healthy, Absolutely. Yeah. No doubt about it. They're not really going to change up what they're doing offensively. They're not going to try and reinvent the wheel. He's still going to get a lot of work that we know. And even if he isn't necessarily a guy who lives up to that all SEC building that he deserves to have going into the year, um, you would still feel pretty good about him getting to 1,100 yards. To leave the SEC in rushing, though, I'd have to look this up, what the average is over the last 10 years of what that total is. I typically think like 1,500 will keep you safe. <laughs> you know? It'd be good, yeah, some would say. You would take 1,500 rushing yards if you can get it. If you're um, passing it out, yeah. You'd feel decent about your chances to get an SEC rushing title. Could be in for a year like that. Uh, I, I hope C-Rod continues to, to kind of emerge and be that guy and they, they add some of the passing game stuff. And as long as he can figure, figure out the fumble issues, that's the biggest thing with him. It's the biggest thing. It's the only thing that made you say, ah, you know what? I don't know if we can rely on him in that same sort of way. And ah, you know what? He doesn't really deserve to be part of that All-American conversation if he's a liability late in some of these games. But yeah, we're nobody's higher on C-Rod than, than this podcast. Mm-hmm. We've established that. Um, Chris Lahore says, uh, Demarcus Bowman, Lorenzo Lingard, uh, Montrell Johnson, and Anthony Richardson will be the best rushing attack in the East. Don't disagree with that. Sure, yeah. Could be. Could be. Uh, Napier has always had pretty prolific rushing attacks. Top, he was in the top fourth in FBS last year. A lot of transfers in there. Um, you got Bowman from Clemson, who was, Bowman and, and, and Lingard are, are one from Clemson, one from Miami. Um, they got a lot to replace because Damian Pierce, 
did so many things well that well spin zone though maybe they don't have much to replace because he was used so incorrectly maybe Mullen was looking two years in the future and realizing we don't want to replace this guy so we'll just never use him fair fair okay yeah (laughs) very well could be and their offensive line should be pretty good Florida's offensive line should not be a liability this year um best in the east would would be saying better than Georgia which Florida was last year even amidst the debacle that's kind of just the way that Georgia's offense is built now Mm -hmm. um and with having more reliance on the passing game, and then better than Tennessee would be tough. That'd be really tough. Um, actually, let's go to that one from uh, Joshua Morris. Uh, he says, Tennessee will have a top five running back room because Hooker will have a slump. I hope not. And Block they will look out. upon. <laughs> we are head dogs on this podcast. We will take no head and Hooker slander. Um, and he says, uh, they will look upon the running backs to pick up some of the slack, but Hooker will still run the ball more often. Um, top five running back room in the SEC. Yeah, I. Josh Heupel has done that mm-hmm. in this in this system that he has been operating with the Baylor principles. He has done that. Even with Tyon Evans gone, you'd still feel pretty good about what they have returning with Jabari Small. Like third in the SEC in rushing last year, so you're essentially saying they could run it back. 12th nationally, I didn't even realize that to the full extent. Having Hooker run the way that he does certainly helps that number. Um, but yeah, uh, I think I think Evans should be, or not Evans, but, but Small should be excellent. Justin Williams is the guy that the coaching staff is really, really high on, the true freshman. He's in that don't surprise if he becomes a game changer immediately, maybe some shades of like 2020 tank, maybe. That, that might be a little bit too lofty to put on the guy, but the offense is certainly gonna work for him if he can kind of stay healthy and stay on the field. We know that Heupel likes to use several backs. And yeah, quietly they've had a, a very, Josh Heupel has had a very good rushing offense during his time running and calling plays post Oklahoma. Yeah, no, I mean, hey, first off, you know, like I said, Hindog doesn't have to struggle, okay? They can just adjust the game plan a little bit and he can be part of it, first off. Second, you know, you're saying if they're looking upon the running, be- running backs, we're using all these big verbiages to discount the hen dog. I like it. Okay, first off, I think you're right. I think you're on the money, but I like it. Um, no, I think <laughs> I think they're often, you know, they have an offense too. That's like, if they're struggling, they just kind of get off the field. So I think that it's just like, okay, they just need to prioritize that, make that the baseline, knowing they can pass, as opposed to last year, like first half of the year is just like, who are we playing a quarterback? Don't really know, guess we'll run the ball. If they start the year, they kick like, no, like we'll run the ball, and then we know we can throw it. That actually might even unlock the offense a little bit more. I'll say this really quick on the Florida thing, man. Looking up and down that list of guys, especially when you throw an Anthony Richardson in there, it is like criminal how this running back room got managed last year. Um, and I, look, we've talked about it enough, but if you're a Florida fan, you gotta be so, so, so excited specifically for that part of your offense and bringing in Napier. Because yeah, I mean, Bowman was decent you know, last year. Like he just didn't play. And so it's like, if you look at the guys that you would want to see in that running back room, you really didn't get to see any of them. So it's like, he yeah. might be able to start off this year on the ground and it just looks like, you know, a night and day difference just from getting some good dudes in the lineup. So yeah, no, I, I look up and down that Florida thing and it's like, man, like it's gonna be them in Tennessee, uh, you know, in terms of like that style. Uh, and then you got Chris Rodriguez right there too. So the East actually, from a running back standpoint, is gonna be really fun. Yeah, should be should be very loaded. And how many of these backfields will maybe have a guy emerge? Maybe maybe Bowman emerges, and and you go into a year thinking you're going to have more of a timeshare, and it's a Mizzou situation where mm-hmm. all of a sudden you realize, 
oh yeah, Tyler Beatty is clearly the best back and we're stupid to not get him 25 touches a game. Mm -hmm. There could be teams that end up having that and answer some of our questions that we have going into this season. Um, Zachary Walden, uh, Zachary Warden, my bad, uh, speaking of Mizzou, says Mizzou still can't get the passing game going and ends up with another workhorse back who has sneaky <laughs> good stats. Nothing sneaky about what Tyler Brady did last year. Nothing sneaky about what Larry Roundtree did the year before that. Maybe sneaky nationally on this here podcast. We give them their love. That is what we do. Even if the, some of the advanced numbers, I know SEC StatCat, not very high on Tyler Brady, but I still think that it's something to be to actually like it's it's a it's a it's a very unique quality to say i can take on that kind of workload i can be the guy that everybody knows getting the football and still find a way to get mine all right like that's that's not an easy thing to be able to do and tyler Beatty did that at a very high level for most of last year um also, disrespectful to call them sneaky because they both of them, him and Roundtree, just boom, boom, yeah. boom, boom. There was nothing sneaky about how they, were, how they were beating you, yeah. Sneak, yeah, yeah. Very, very much um, bring your hard hat mm -hmm. type of guys. They, they embrace the contact. Uh, if, if that happens, I don't know what it would say about Eli Drinkowitz as an offensive mind. If he can't figure out the quarterback situation, if they are not able to add anybody via the transfer portal before that September, or that May first deadline to get somebody to play this year, I gotta think they're actively looking. Of course, <laughs> probably gonna find out very very soon about this JT Daniels thing. Um, but the running game, I don't I don't know that we can necessarily assume that Nathaniel Pete, the transfer from Stanford, is going to be in that role. He was their leading rusher. He does stuff in special teams as well. So. You, you kind of don't necessarily need him to be that guy. Elijah Young is somebody that they're still really high on as well. If he can kind of emerge and become uh, a thing, at least. It's it's a, unbelievable to see like just how much work Beatty got compared to the other backs last mm -hmm. year. Like the, the number that I think is just fascinating is Beatty got 268 carries compared to 37 for Young last year. <laughs> Young had the second most work of any of any back. Right, like that's that's how lopsided it was. Yet the coaching staff continues to say, you know, we don't need one guy to emerge. Of course, they, they'd prefer to have as many running backs to work with as possible, but that's just the way that it's played out so far, and wouldn't necessarily be a surprise to see that once again. Um, let's do this one. We already did a John Emery one. Um, let's do this, and we already kind of hit on Arkansas there. Uh, Austin Foster had an Arkansas one. Uh, let's end with this one. Let's end with this one. I like this. Uh, Ryan Pearson says, Devon A-Chain Heisman campaign starts now. I love Devon A-Chain. Mm -hmm. Love Devon A-Chain. If he repeats his efficiency, there is a path for him to have an All-America season. No doubt about it. No doubt. Isaiah Spiller was great. If I'm a defensive coordinator, I'm more worried when A-Chain's on the field. Mm -hmm. I am. Just am. Not to take anything away from Spiller. Um, who we kind of, we poo-pooed him a little bit before last year, so I kind of feel bad about that. Uh, to a certain extent though, A-Chain's that dude, man. Mm -hmm. If you think he's just a track guy because he can run the 100 with world-class speed, watch him run through contact. He is special, really, really special. A&M fans should be very, very fired up about him. And their offensive line, I know you gotta replace Kenyon Green, this should be better. They return a lot of guys. They, they're in a spot where I think they're not going to have to make some of those in-season adjustments with the quarterback situation. Like, I, I'm all in on A-Chain. 
I'm not going to probably have him as a first team All SEC back unless Rodriguez or Tank, unless they unless they get hurt or something like that. But man, if I'm doing projections and Jimbo's offense, I, I I absolutely think we could see A Chain get between 15 to 20 touches. Even though he is one of, a smaller guy, he has shown that he can take on that kind of workload. And I think that he could emerge as like a star this year. Absolutely. I'm, I'm torn on this one as bad as I want to make fun of Texas A&M because I really do like H.A. <laughs> and I, I wanted to just be like, yeah, yeah, buy in, All-American, see how that goes. But like this guy is actually really good and fun to watch. And as much as we all joke about A&M and the preseason hype and everything, this guy, really, seriously, uh, A&M, maybe across America, um, you know, you could throw in there like, you know, maybe like a Pitt University, just underrated running back after underrated running back. If you look up and down A&M and the history of the running backs they've had since about 2012, you'll be like, oh, I remember that, and that guy, and that guy, and that guy, and like H.A. Chain's like one of those guys where it's like, yeah, like maybe the national media doesn't really talk about him much, but if you watch him play, it's like, oh, that's a dude. So yeah, again, and then like I, I, this isn't slander. This is my real opinion. It's all kind of limited by Jimbo and what he wants to do. He's not a very, he's not a fun enjoyer. Sometimes he likes to really, you know, get it down, get it, get it within phase. And A Chain is a guy who can kind of do it outside of phase. But I think that if Jimbo just decides, let's let's let this dude run and just let him have fun. Let's design some stuff for him a little bit more this year. I think it'd be really fun. I might, I might decide to pick A-Chain as um, leading rusher in the SEC this year. We do predictions. I very well could. I, I think the volume is going to surprise some people mm-hmm. a little bit with the way that he's able to, to kind of be involved in the passing game as well, at least with total scrimmage touches. We've seen in Jimbo's offense, like, man, he feeds him. He yep. absolutely feeds him, and there is, there is plenty of work for A-Chain with Spiller gone and all the touches that he coveted in that offense. Dang okay. it, buy it in, Connor. I hate it. <laughs> you are. You are. I'm going to sell you on a and I'm going to sell you on A-Chain. Yeah, very, very excited for the future uh, that he has in his junior season there. Got something really fun for later in the week. Uh, I was telling Will about this before. I'm, I'm pretty sure that we're going to lock it in for later in the week unless something big breaking news comes up. It's something that I've been kind of thinking about. Uh, workshopping for a little while, so look out for that. Leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to this podcast if you have not already. Subscribe to College Football Uncensored. Go subscribe to the Saturday Down South YouTube channel, Blue Chip Grit, our basketball newsletter, Saturday Down Football for our football newsletter. Join the Facebook group here named Red on Air with figuring out a word bold and brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.